Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? Uh, if you want to use a blue pew Bible, you can follow along on page 856. Um, so it seems hard to believe that we are one week out from Christmas Eve. I feel like I say that every December, uh, but it's pretty much, I feel like more than any other month of the year, you just kind of blink and it's, it's, it's over and it's, it's gone. And um, I'm sure this week coming up, we were to compare calendars. We're all pretty full this week coming up, right? I mean, you would kind of lay out what you have going on. There will be a frenzy of activity uh, throughout the world, especially the U.S., with, with work parties and neighborhood parties and shopping and cooking and setting up and stressing out, all right? That, 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 that's the week we have ahead of us. I uh, just read something that... Um, this holiday season is going to be a new record, like it is most years, of uh, $680 billion in retail sales um, this upcoming week. And, and listen, this is not like me going off on like a venting uh, sidetrack here. Like I am all in. I've said that before on the season. There have been um, boxes being delivered to our house on a regular basis for the last two weeks, all right? Um, sorry, local retailers. Amazon won our hearts again uh, this year. But um, the UPS man, actually, I think he's so regular coming to our house that we are we're now getting our neighbor's boxes. Okay, so he's not even, like, he's just seeing the address and going, this is going to the Cybertons. I'm not even going to look at the name. And I'm, like, bringing boxes to our neighbors. Being like, these aren't ours. These are yours. Merry Christmas. Um, so uh, this is not me venting, but I do think it's, it's worth just a week out reminding us, uh, especially as believers, that it is possible to love the season, to be all in while at the same time uh, making it a priority to intentionally, um, purposefully reflect on what it means to Advent. What it means to wait expectantly. I just so appreciated um, Vanessa's prayer there. Just, just thank you for the stillness. Like that, that 10 seconds of stillness she gave you was probably the only stillness you've had in the last month. Right? And, and so the idea of what it means to um, anticipate an arrival um, and, and how the, the meaning of Christmas Day truly understood provides purpose and meaning to every other day of the year. And I think it, my encouragement, my challenge to you this week, to each day, um, find a way to be intentional to be silent this week, even if it's just 10 minutes. I mean, if you... I bet you, if you take just 10, 15 minutes just to reflect, to pray, to be still, what that will do for your heart this week leading up to Christmas. And I don't think that will detract you from enjoying all the bells and whistles of Christmas season. I think it will actually provide depth to it. I think a purposeful reflection will, will kind of keep us from placing our hope in kind of a surface level uh, deliverance and happiness from Christmas Day as opposed to having a deeply rooted joy in Christ. You know what I mean by that? Well, we've been going through this Advent season with a series on love, seeing the, uh, the love of God traced through the scriptures uh, from Genesis leading up to the birth of Jesus. And, and last week, if you were here, we spent some time in Matthew chapter 1. We looked at the journey uh, that Joseph went through, um, ultimately leading him to obey the command of this angel by faith, going through with this engagement with his wife, um, who is pregnant, um, uh, fathering this child, really kind of being um, one of the first kind of uh, spotlighted adoptive fathers in the Bible. Um, the main takeaway, that being um, that God's extraordinary work often, most often, flows through ordinary obedience of his people. 
So we saw that last week. This week we pivot to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to zero in on Mary, and specifically her song uh, that is traditionally um, known as the Magnificat. And I think it's, uh, even before we get to the passage, I think it's, it's worth spending a couple minutes to just set a context of what leads her to sing this song. Um, and so I just want to kind of point out a couple things that happened in Luke 1 along the way leading up to it. Um, Earlier in the chapter, Mary is visited by the angel uh, named Gabriel, and Gabriel tells her that she has found favor with God, and she will conceive God's child, a son, a son whom she is to name Jesus, and, and he's going to be a king, not, not an earthly king whose throne will just be kind of temporary and forgotten, but an eternal king whose throne will reign forever. Okay, so that, that's what he tells Mary. And Mary, in response, if you remember, like, understandably, she's got some questions. Like, didn't wake up that morning thinking that was going to happen. Like, a lot of weird things could happen. I didn't think an angel would come and tell me I'm going to conceive God's child. Just wasn't on my radar waking up this morning. And so Mary has a little bit of a back and forth, and ultimately the angel just tells her, Mary, nothing's impossible with God. And Mary, in faith, she, she believes uh, but, but her response is not somebody who just won American Idol, right? She's not like, oh my gosh, I'm the one to father God's child. She and almost kind of concedes to it, if you read it in the text. Do you remember what she says? And just kind of this deeply rooted faith where she just says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. While studying every year, it seems like every Advent, that phrase, let it be, just stops me in my tracks. It gets me every time, because we, we spoke about this last week, how um, to say the least, this is going to be a difficult path for Mary. This is kind of a tough ask of her. Okay, the optics of this in first century Jewish culture look terrible. How is she going to tell her parents? I wonder how that first conversation went. Mom, Dad, stable, we got to talk. <laughs> what about Joseph, her, her fiancé, right? Like, what's... How, how is he kind of sit him down and just explain this to him? What, what's going to happen if people don't believe her? And yet, despite all of that, Lord, let it be. Like what a word for the church if we would just receive it, even in our day. Lord, this is a hard thing you're telling me. It goes against my common senses. It goes against what culture is going to say is good and right, but let it be. Lord, this could go badly for me in the days of head. You, you, you don't know the path this could put me on, but let it be. Lord, I'm unworthy to be the carrier of your child, but let it be. I mean, that's not even the sermon yet, all right? But it could be, all right? That could just be the, the word that maybe you need to remember today. And then Luke tells us that she goes with haste. She goes immediately to the hill country to visit Elizabeth, um, her relative, whom the angel told her is, is pregnant, at six, with, uh, with, pregnant with John the Baptist for six months at this point. And Mary goes there, she spends her first trimester there, and then something happens right away upon arriving. First of all, why did Mary run away right away? Perhaps it got a little too, um, uh, a little too much heat in Nazareth. Perhaps that first conversation with her parents didn't go well. We saw last week Joseph didn't believe her. 
So she, she goes. She just has to get away for a few months and, and um, emotionally just probably all over the place at this point. Like, how could she not be? She's, um, in some ways, I'm sure, excited, anxious, confused. Maybe she's facing some self-doubt. Was that really an angel? Is this what, what's really happening to me right now? What am I feeling right now? But either way, she gets to Elizabeth, and perhaps for the first time, she comes across somebody who's actually excited about her pregnancy. The first one who didn't grill her. The first one who didn't think she was crazy. But on the contrary, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist leaping in her womb, and she says, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of God's word. And it just blew me away, again, at how timely, how needed Elizabeth was in Mary's life at this point in time. Like, it just, among other things, screams for the need and value of a a faith community in the life of a believer. People who are uh, shoulder to shoulder with you, who affirm the same truth, believe in the same God, who can speak life into us when we're doubting. You ever doubting on anything? You ever struggling with something? Do you ever need somebody who God can use to be an encouragement in our lives to propel us forward with courageous joy in the plans and purposes of God? Again, even before we get to our passage, like church, let me just ask us all right now, who is speaking into your life right now? Especially for those of us who are in a season of doubt who are struggling to term, come to terms with God's work in your life, struggling to come to terms with what he has put on your plate, perhaps struggling to come to terms with what he has kept off your plate, and it's just been flat out hard. Church, who is your Elizabeth right now? Who is a man or woman of God who sees you, who you have given license to speak into your life, to affirm the work of God in your life? And by the way, I'm not just addressing the women, right? So like men, who you got? Men, who could you name right now in this faith community whom you know well enough to speak into your life, who you've given permission to to speak into your life? Because you know what happens? That doesn't happen naturally. 30% of men have not had a deep heart-level conversation with somebody in the past six months. So is that you? Who do you got? We might be tempted as men to think that that's a, it's a sign of strength, that we don't need that. I'm okay. But in due time, that mentality will be exposed to be our greatest weakness. We need an Elizabeth in our lives whom God can use to pour some gas on the ashes of our souls in such a way that stirs them up into a flame once again. And let it be true of us that we view Grace Church as the people we're sitting next to and not the pews you're sitting on. Pews cannot speak life into you. People do. And so let us open our eyes and see and look around and see who can be an Elizabeth to me right now. Who can I be an Elizabeth to right now? Well, after hearing and being encouraged by Elizabeth, Mary now breaks out in song. 
and it's worth just digging into. And um, I feel like we always need an annual reminder that based upon Jewish culture at this time, Mary is in all likelihood no more than 12, 13, or 14 years old. Pastor Jeff brought this up to me this past week when we were just talking about this passage and something that he came across. And, and being uh, really the, the pastor for our uh, youth in our church, he, he just says that this, this always brings me back every Christmas to, to the women, uh, young women in the ministry who are, are the same age as Mary. And putting them in her place of how they would have responded and, and, and how just deep it is that, that they would respond like her here. And so he had an idea that I loved and so um, I have invited Abby Davies, uh, an eighth grader in our church, to read the Magnificat for us this morning. Um, she's not going to sing it, although she could. The girl's got some pipes on her. I don't know if you've heard her. Like, sit around her in worship, all right? Scope her out and sit by her. She can sing. But she's going to read for us uh, this morning. So you can hold it up nice and close. Okay. Mary's Song of Praise. And Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirits rejoice in God, my Savior. And for he has looked on the humble estate for his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his, and his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, Luke chapter, verse 46 to 55. Thank you, Abby. Let's give her a round. This song exposes and reflects the effective love of God in sending his son. God's love is not something just to look at and go, that's nice, and head nod at it to, to notice every year. It's effective to transform lives and entire nations. And so three layers of effective love this morning. First, the effective love towards Mary. The effective love towards Mary. Um, out of the gate, we get a glimpse into the love that has transformed this young woman from the inside out. She says, my soul magnifies. The Latin word for magnifies is where we get the title magnificat from. My, my spirit rejoices, for he has looked upon me, a humble servant. For he has looked upon me, a virgin. For he has looked upon me, a nobody, until God made me a somebody. And she says, generation after generation will know my name. And she's not being arrogant there. She's not being prideful and puffed up. She's saying, people will read of me, and they're going to worship God because of the blessing that he has bestowed upon me. And isn't it interesting that God is about to change the course of history with the three most important decades the world has ever known. And how does God move? How does God move? 
In, in a culture where women were just as likely to be seen and treated as property as opposed to people. Where the world was run by powerful, oftentimes manipulative men. How does God move? Does he go through a powerful, successful man? Does he come through the emperor of Rome? Does he at least go to the governor of Judea? Does he come across the high priest of Israel? No. He moves through two obscure, humble women in Elizabeth and Mary, neither of which should be having children in the world's eyes. Elizabeth is an older woman who was barren in her entire life. Mary is barely 18, who is a virgin. And Luke, the, uh, amongst the four gospel writers, he is the one who most explicitly spotlights the work and indispensable contributions of women all throughout Jesus' life in ministry and the early church, and that he also, also authored Acts. And it begins here, dramatically, with Mary. And yet, I want us to dial in here, because just because Mary is young, and just because Mary is a woman, does not mean Luke portrays her as this kind of stereotype of being a naive and weak little girl that I think our culture often does. That Mary in the Christmas stories is just, gonna, again, just kind of weak, kind of naive, kind of passive, where on the contrary, you just really consider that song, she is a fiercely strong woman who displays a, a robust, God-centered theology in this song. Her words are absolutely filled with Old Testament allusions and quotations. It tells us, listen, Mary knew her Bible. Just a couple of examples. We don't even have time to go through all of them, but her song echoes a lot of the same themes as Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. Hannah being the mother of the prophet Samuel, um, the prophet who would go on to find and, and, and really raise up King David. So Mary knew her Old Testament history and now rightfully sees herself in this redemptive line. This song is structurally the same as a psalm of thanksgiving, with parallels specifically seen in Psalm 103. So Mary knew her wisdom literature. Mary loved the scriptures and was immersed in them in such a way where they just flowed out of her. And here's the best part. She wasn't a scholar. She was, in her own uh, description, an ordinary young woman. And that should be such an encouragement for us. That the Bible is not just for people with master's degrees and pastors. It's not even just for adults. All the people of God can and should be immersed in the truth in here and ask that the Spirit would illuminate it before our eyes. And why am I saying this today? Because we are in a day where the Bible is under attack. And listen, it's not only under attack from people outside the church, even more dangerously, it's, from, it's an attack from within. Where Christians and churches will say, um, you know what, we just can't teach our kids the Bible anymore. We, we, we can include, include it in some way, we can allude to it in some way, but, but it's not enough. We need to find other ways or else they're going to grow up bored and leave the church. In the, the Bible, it's too stale for them. It, it's too boring. I mean, it's too long. There's no pictures. It's too hard. 
and, and horrifically, there is a trend to replace the timeless word of God with just a creative moral lesson on how to make our kids nice. Like, God, help us. Kids will grow up and realize they can be nice without Jesus. They're going to look at other people in their life who don't believe and go, actually, they're kind of and sometimes nicer than my Christian friends. Church, let's not teach our kids how to be nice. Let's teach them how to be new in Christ. And we'll trust nice will come along with it. In short, let's teach them the Bible. Um, so that's one aspect of Mary. I think another thing that gets wrongly communicated in just this kind of modern American church model is that um, it's the men who should be in deep Bible and theology studies while the women should just all be about fellowship and hospitality. And churches might not say that, but you look at the way men's and women's ministries often get handled, that's generally the way it goes. And this is a false dichotomy that needs to be, uh, it needs to be either one or the other, when the reality is that both need both. You know what I'm saying? Men need fellowship and community just as much as they need to delve deep in the scriptures, and the same goes for women. So I think if you were a Mary in a typical American church today, uh, a young woman around, let's say, 13, 14 years old, so picture Abby up here, um, more often than not, there is an implication that, that as Mary is growing up in the church, that, that the Bible must not be important because nobody really emphasized it when I was growing up in their teaching. And as I'm getting older, no one's really encouraging me to dig deep into the scriptures as I get older. And it's madness. And it is insanity, and Lord help us. Because it is the scriptures that God gives to his people to reveal to us himself. To tell us who he is, how he moves, what he has done across history to redeem, to re protect, to warn, and to promise. And it's Mary's knowledge of the Bible that sparks this worship in her heart. Let us cling to our Bibles. Let us hold it in high regard for everyone in the church because we are here today and gone tomorrow. Grace Church is here today and gone next week, but the word of the Lord will remain forevermore. And above all, it is Mary's knowledge of the Bible that makes it clear to her, as seen in verse 47, that she is in need of a Savior. She says, my God, my Savior. Mary is blessed amongst women, but she's not perfect. She's not without sin. She, just like everybody else, has fallen short of the glory of God, and she hungers for a Messiah, for a way to be saved. She feels the ache in her heart. And so the whole poem recites the promises of God that fill the Old Testament. And Mary, by the grace of God, has been given insight into the fact that this son growing in her womb would be the fulfillment of all of them. Like, just think about how wild this moment must be for her. Like, it's no wonder all she can do is just worship. This song reveals the effective love of God towards Mary. Second, it highlights the effective love towards Israel. It highlights the effective love towards Israel. So um, Mary, kind of in this song, kind of zooms out here with an understanding what, that while Christ is, is personally uh, transformative for her, it's also corporately transformative for the entire nation of Israel. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Once again, let us not mistake in Mary's humility for softness. Do not mistake her meekness for weakness. She is making bold, aggressive statements all throughout this psalm. She's not merely announcing a birth for her own personal fulfillment. She's proclaiming the onset of a new kingdom for national fulfillment. A kingdom that will be nothing like the world has ever seen. A kingdom that sides with the humble. A kingdom that sides with the marginal. And a king who finds a home with sinners in need of a savior. The nation of Israel at this time is ruled by and large by um, strong, um, so-called strong men that have utter control over the people. They, they lord over the entire country as gods themselves. And there's this system in place where the power is concentrated at the top. Where the Pharisees have taken a God-centered covenant and replaced it with a man-centered religion. Where grace has been replaced by law. Where humility has been replaced by pride. Where salvation um, is now rooted in works and love of themselves as opposed to the works and love of God. And Mary proclaims, that's all coming crashing down. The proud, they will be scattered. The rich will be made poor. And the mighty will be brought low. This is almost a sneak peek into the Beatitudes, a, a, a portion of Scripture that Luke will um, write out in Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is given a little glimpse into this. And her words line up wells. Her words line up well with those of her son that's in her womb. And she is proclaiming, listen, a reckoning is coming. A new age has started for Israel. And it is either a warning or it's a promise depending on where you stand. The kingdom economics are about to flip the script. It's no longer going to be a top-down approach, but rather a bottom-up it won't be the best and brightest that get all the glory. It will be the meek and the humble. Israel was in for a reckoning. And it would be sparked and made effective by the love of God in sending Jesus Christ. Jesus would instate what we call the priesthood of all believers. The members of the body would have the power, not the structural system of the Jewish priesthood. And the church would be called, as an implication of the gospel, to serve the least of these, not just cater to the well-established. And so this is a powerful, practical word for the church today as we consider our work and our calling, that, that the gospel is personal, absolutely, yes, where, where individuals are called to respond in faith to the work of Christ, but the implications of the gospel is also corporate. 
and that it impacts how we operate and exist as a church. Okay, another way to put it would be gospel doctrine forms and shames a gospel culture within the church. A culture where we ought to be constantly and consistently on the side of those who society considers weak and society considers overlooked and marginalized and where we fight for and advocate for the least of these. Where we speak up for those voices who are drowned out by power structures in play. Where we speak up for the unborn. Where we advocate for those discriminated against in housing and education. Where we support women who are subject to sexual harassment in all spheres of society. And then we work to expose and put out the men who are responsible. This is a church that sees itself not only believing in gospel doctrine that transforms people, but also believes in the implications of a gospel culture that seeks to transform neighborhoods and cities and entire societies. Third, and lastly, this song highlights the effective love towards the world. Mary, at the very end, concludes by zooming out even further by understanding that while the gospel is personally transformative for her, and it is also corporately transformative for Israel, it is also globally transformative for all people. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So, so how does that mean the world? Well, do you see what Mary did there? Mary just connected this baby inside of her as the ultimate fulfillment to the original promises given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. We're going to have it up on the screen. This is God coming upon Abram, the first thing he says to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is through the family line of Abraham that the nation of Israel came about. And it is through the nation of Israel that the Messiah has come about. The Messiah who's now growing in Mary's womb. This Messiah did come for Mary. And this Messiah did come for Israel. But he also came to fulfill the first promise. That all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. The gospel is not just for a certain person. It's not just for a certain nation. The gospel is for all who would call upon the name of the Lord and believe in Jesus Christ as their savior. One more passage. This is what the Apostle Paul affirms in Galatians 3 when he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. I love that before there was ever a preacher, there was God who was preaching the gospel. And this song being belted out by Mary, it goes deep. It alludes to the past. It foreshadows the future. And the entire complexity of all human history leads to a stunningly simple truth. Jesus is the answer. 
Jesus, conceived and growing inside, inside Mary, is the answer. In him, the love of God was shown to Mary. In him, the love of God was sent to free Israel. In him, the love of God was offered to the entire world, past, present, future, for all who would believe in him. In Christ, God's love is made effective. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, Christ accomplishes the Father's purposes that have been in place ever since the beginning. And faith in him, faith in Jesus, is not just doing something to get the love of God. Faith is receiving the love of God as it is. You hear that? Faith is not getting love from God. Faith is receiving as it is a free gift. And faith that confesses our sin faith that confesses our inability to save ourselves, and faith that surrenders our life to him, for he has done what we could not. Faith is the means God uses to exalt a humble servant to his right hand, and a lack of faith is what will tear down the prideful for all of eternity. Now we choose. Is Jesus the answer for me? We're the church. We are a week out from Christmas Eve. And as we started with, there is marginal, if any, space in your calendar over the next seven days. But in the midst of it all, let us never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the answer. In all the complexity of life, in all the relational strife, in all the family tensions, and the tensions at work and in the home that threaten to cast doubt in our hearts, never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the answer. And in all the unknowns of the future that stirs up anxiety in our hearts and all the surprises that life has to offer, cling to what is known and what has been known by God ever since the beginning and now is being revealed through a virgin. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would actually be moved by what is a stunningly simple truth. And Father, life is complex, and there are many layers of difficulty that many of us are facing, but Father, let it not crowd out that simple truth. Let us feel ourselves what it means to be on the receiving end of effective love, love that's not just nice to notice, but love that is able to transform our lives. Father, I pray for that for us this morning. I pray for that uh, for those who do not yet know you, that who are in our lives, Lord, that above all else, what might get sent forth is the truth, that Jesus is the answer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.